0: called the leaven of the Pharisees, and Jesus described this beast as hypocrisy, and what he meant was the Pharisees really made it their aim to make it look like they were trying to glorify God. And they wanted people to think that that was their aim and that was their ambition. But in reality, what they were really hungering and thirsting after was the admiration of the people and the praise of the people. And it's interesting to note that, by the way, the Pharisees were quite successful in this regard. We forget, or maybe haven't heard, that the teaching of Jesus has really changed the meaning of that word. Because in 1st century Palestine, the Pharisees were much loved and respected by the people. But Jesus was saying when you get into that mindset where you're trying to please people or pleasing people is more important than pleasing God, that road will always end in hypocrisy. And so he was telling his disciples, therefore, when the Pharisees judge you or persecute you, you don't need to fear their judgment or what they say about you. And then he goes on to remind them that if we confess Jesus before people, he will confess us before the angels in heaven. And then he also tells his disciples, but if you deny me before people, you will be denied for the angels and God in heaven and right after Jesus finishes teaching his disciples this someone in the crowd pipes up with it's not really an interruption I guess because Jesus finished but it's just something that's completely irrelevant it's out of left field this is in Luke chapter 12 verse 13 and this is what the man says Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to a man, Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, meaning his disciples, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. And I heard a story a long time ago about these young men who broke into an antique store one night not because they wanted to steal anything but because they wanted to play a prank. And what they did was they took the price tags of the antiques and they rearranged them. So if they found an expensive antique that was worth a lot, they would take the price tag off of that one and they would switch it with an antique that was relatively low in value. That was their aim. But they didn't touch anything else. So everything else looked about the same as when they came in. And so the owner of this antique store, he comes in the next morning not knowing what has happened the previous night. And everything looks the same as far as he. CERN, so he just goes about his business. Why wouldn't he, right? Well, sooner or later, customers start to come in to this antique store, and needless to say, they're really surprised about some of the deals that are being offered here. And they start to talk to the owner of the store about it, and he realizes before long that he's got this huge, huge mess on his hands that he has to untangle. And I always liked that story because I think it's just the perfect picture of what Satan tries to do every day in our lives. I mean, what Satan is trying to do right now, I guarantee it, as I speak, what Satan is trying to do. He's trying to make us believe that the things that God cares about are relatively worthless. And then he advertises the things of the world as being things of great value to us. And the man that we encounter in this story is the perfect example of what I'm talking about. Because think about it. He's not interested in what Jesus just taught his disciples. He's not interested in pursuing a relationship with Jesus. He's not interested in becoming a disciple of Jesus. All of the things which are truly valuable, he cares nothing about. What he values is his inheritance, or what he thinks is his inheritance. And so when he sees Jesus, he just sees Jesus as a means to an end. Well, Jesus can help me get what I really value. And Jesus sees the root of this man's problem, his covetousness. And so he basically just tells him, That he's not interested in being a holy small claims court judge. And he knows that that's not what the man really needs. And so he really just kind of dismisses him. It's interesting. And then he goes on to tell his disciples. Be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And it there's one sin that the Bible makes clear will make you miserable and will wreak havoc in your life. It is this sin of greed and covetousness. And there are plenty of examples in the Old Testament that illustrate this for us. The one that sticks out most in my mind, which you may remember, is Naboth. He was a man who owned a very attractive vineyard and The king of Israel, King Ahab, saw it, and he began to covet it. And he began to covet it so much that he became just totally depressed. Couldn't be consoled. And that, in and of itself, right there, is a lesson to us. I mean, here's the king of Israel. He's got money. He's got power. He's got his own vineyards. He can't enjoy any of it. Why? Because he covets what he doesn't have, and it makes him miserable. And so his wife tells him, well, I can get that vineyard for you. Jezebel says this to him, and he knows that his wife is not a moral person. He knows that she's probably going to do something underhanded to get that vineyard, but he adopts the don't ask, don't tell policy. Just says to himself, all right. And then, a little while later, Naboth ends up being murdered. So now, there's a dead man, and all of that can be traced back to that moment when Ahab just started coveting that vineyard. We see the same destructive forces working in David's life when he murders Uriah the Hittite because he coveted Uriah's wife. And we see all the pain and suffering that that brought, not just down upon David, but upon the nation of Israel itself. Now, I know in that case we've got covetousness mixed up with lust. Sins often, unfortunately, mix well together. But copious examples, copious examples in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says, The greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then Jesus goes on to strengthen his point by telling his disciples this parable. Verse 18. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. And what I want to draw our attention to here this morning is the fact that the man in the parable, the rich man, becomes wealthy and prosperous through perfectly lawful means. Think about that. He doesn't exploit anyone. He doesn't deal dishonestly or cheat anyone. He just lawfully becomes the possessor of a great amount of wealth. And so what does he do in that situation? He says to himself, well, I can basically retire for at least a few years. I have enough goods stored up for myself so I can just take it easy. I don't have to work. I can eat, drink, and be married, which basically means party. And the interesting thing about that picture is that most people, I think, would consider that to be the abundant life. That is what it means to have the abundant life. You don't have to work, and you've got enough resources to just do whatever you want to do. I mean, isn't that the kind of life we should be aspiring to? But what does God say about this man? Now, think about this. When someone else calls you a fool, you can always write that off as just their opinion, right? Right? When God calls you a fool, it's an ironclad fact. And God says that this man with this mindset is not a wise man. He is a fool for thinking he can live this way. Because if you believe that there is a God, one, and you believe that at any moment, at any time, he can call you to account for the life that you've lived, it's obvious, isn't it, that what matters is not how material wealthy I am, what matters is whether or not I'm rich towards God. That's what I should care about. And so that really begs the question that I want to talk to you about a little bit this morning. You know, what what does it mean? Okay, Jesus said our life doesn't consist in the abundance of our possessions. Okay, we got it. Check. But then what does our life consist in? Or what does the abundant life consist in? And what I want to suggest to us this morning is that if we are poor towards God, it is not because God isn't generous. God is giving us gifts all the time. But our hearts are closed to them. Now, a few years ago I was out of town, at a fair with some of my friend's children. And I want to confess to you this morning that Just speaking personally, I don't enjoy the fair very much. And I haven't been in a while, so fairs may have changed dramatically since then. So I'm not trying to pass judgment on anyone, okay? If you like the fair, that's good. Um, But I've had some bad experiences on rides, and I've had some bad food experiences. And I don't just mean food that tasted bad. Um, And I'm sitting there with... Uh, my friend's kids, and I'm supervising them as they go from place to place and maybe once or twice, you know, I jumped on a ride with them. But, I'm more or less just watching them. And, I'm watching them ride on the rides and do the fun house and all the amusements and I just started thinking to myself, man, this place is such a dump. Because, all of the rides were just dingy, they were old, they were unattractive and, and, I was just slipping into one of those, you know, egotistical states of mind that we men especially are attracted to. And we start thinking, if I ran the fair, you know, I would, there would be a new sheriff in Dodge and things would get cleaned up around here, you know. And uh, all this is going through my mind. And meanwhile, these kids are just having the time of their lives. I mean, they are living it up to the fullest. They're going on rides multiple times. They're going all over the place and they just can't get enough. They cannot get enough of the fair. And when we're riding home that evening, grandma and grandpa are there and grandpa asks the question, Who wants to go to the fair tomorrow? You know, and I'm thinking, oh, please don't ask that question. I mean, Jesus come back tonight because I don't want to go to the fair <laughs> Tomorrow, but what are the kids doing? Of course, they're just enthusiastically, I do, I do, I do. And I, a little while later, I started reflecting on this experience because the contrast just really, really stuck out to me. I mean, because think about it. Seriously, think about this. We were at the exact same place, all right? It's not like we were at two different places. We were at the exact same place. We're looking at the exact same rides. There's the exact same workers. All of it's the same. And yet, all I can do is pick out every little defect I see. Every little thing that I would change. Every little thing that's wrong. That's all I can think about. They're having the time of their lives. And I guess in my defense, I could say that I was right. The fair definitely could have used a makeover. But... I realized that whatever I had gained through the use of my critical faculties, it didn't make up for what I had lost. And I realized I've just become a crotchety, grumpy adult. The transformation is complete. That's me now. And... I was really interested as as a reader when I started encountering different authors who would express similar experiences. They would talk about the glory of childhood. And there's one poem in particular that's really dear to me called The Retreat. And I'm just going to read a little bit to you this morning. It's by Henry Vaughn. And he's talking about the same thing that I'm talking about, the, the joy of childhood. And he says... When on some gilded cloud or flower my gazing soul would dwell an hour. And in those weaker glories spy some shadows of eternity. Before I taught my tongue to wound my conscience with a sinful sound. Or had the black art to dispense a several sin to every sense. But felt through all this fleshly dress bright shoots. Of everlastingness. I mean, he's essentially saying, when I was young, I was rich towards God. When I was young, because the beauty of creation was just completely open to me, and he would dwell on these things that God had created, and he said it would just fill his heart with these bright shoots of everlastingness until the reality of sin became apparent to his conscience, and shades of the prison house started to close in on him. And I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to advocate an eternal immaturity here this morning as being the means to an abundant life. The Apostle Paul said that when I was a child, I thought like a child, I spoke like a child, and I acted like a child. But when I grew up, I put childish things away. And so we really have to distinguish between childish. And childlike. God wants us to have the mind of an adult on our shoulders. He wants us to grow up, but He wants us to have the heart of a child in our chests. And if we want to have the abundant life, we've got to recover that childlike receptivity to God's gifts. Another Right, as Thomas Traherne, talking about this very thing, said, I evidently saw that the way to become rich and blessed was not by heaping accidental and devised riches to make ourselves great in the vulgar manner, but to approach more near or to see more clearly with the eye of our understanding the beauties and glories of the whole world. And to have communion with the deity in the riches of God and nature. If you read the Psalms. You will notice that the psalmists are constantly giving thanks and praise for three things in particular in reference to God. And one of those things is the beauty of God's creation. Now. When I drive to work in the morning, like many of you, I have to get up rather early. And so depending on the time of year, I get to see the sunrise. And I don't really have the words to say what I want to say this morning apart from the desert sunrise is just absolutely phenomenal. It's beautiful. I mean, all the different shades of color you see in the sky and in the clouds is the first rays of the sun start to creep up over the horizon and a lot of times i'll just tune that out because the radio will be on right i mean think about it this way a famous artist could paint me a picture of a sunrise and i would look at it and go wow that's a great picture but god gives me a three-dimensional sunrise and i just ignore it and i turn on the radio and that's what i mean god's giving us these gifts but we're saying, no thanks. He's giving us these riches. Another thing that the psalmist talks about is the fact that God is constantly delivering us in times of trial, and times of suffering. They talk about being delivered from slavery in Egypt. They talk about being delivered from their enemies and... It's medicine for our hearts to remember that kind of thing, to remember. And I'm not just talking about when we were converted to Christianity. I'm talking about the times in our life when God has delivered us from trials and from sufferings. It's medicine. It's riches to our heart when we contemplate on those things and then just return and say, Thank you, God. Thank you for all you've done in my life. To keep coming back to those things, not to forget them. And then finally, and this one is the most shocking of all. But the psalmist very loudly prays and give thanks for the beauty of God's righteous law. In Psalm 1, we're told that the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. In Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the whole Psalter, basically the whole psalm is dedicated to praising The righteousness of God's law. And the psalmist basically says, thinking about your law gives me more joy than all other kinds of riches. And to appreciate how shocking that is, think about how you you would react if your friend walked up to you and said that. (laughs) All right? With a straight face. Walks up and says, you know what? I delight in God's law more than anything else. More than any material wealth, I should say. I mean, we would immediately think, well, you're a hypocrite. Nobody, nobody delights in the law like that. But the psalmist did. We can't accuse him of hypocrisy, the writer of sacred scripture. Here was a man who had switched the price tags around. He said, no, the things of the world are worthless. But when I meditate on God's nature and his holiness and the order of his mind, I am filled with joy. And we have even more reason to be filled with joy because we have the teachings of Jesus Christ. We have the Sermon on the Mount. The psalmist didn't have that. We can meditate. And look, all of us have have sinned. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm saying even in that state of sinfulness, though, we can still meditate on the beauty of God's righteousness, just as we are. And again, it's medicine for the heart. Now... I understand that this is very simple and straightforward. I'm almost done here. And it's, it's so easy for us, well for me I should say at least, to gravitate towards the sour experiences. It's so easy to get in that mindset that I was in when I was at the fair where all we see is the defects of our family. All we see is the defects of our work. All we see is the defects of our marriage. All we see is the defects of our church. That's all we're looking at. And we just let Satan rob us of the joy that God wants to give us. I mean, think about it. Has thinking about any of that stuff ever done you an ounce of good? Has it ever fixed anything in your life? Of course, it could be said that what about times when we are facing intense suffering? Intense physical suffering or intense emotional suffering or we're in a situation where we have to watch a loved one die. You know, when we're in situations like that, it's, it's really difficult to think about the beauty of the law or the beauty of nature, isn't it? And it is. It is absolutely. But in those situations, we can still think about the cross we can still think about the blood and the sweat and the tears and the sufferings of the Lamb of God. God knows what it's like to watch a loved one die. And a wise Christian author once said that the Son of Man did not suffer and die so that we wouldn't suffer, but so that our sufferings might become like his. And I just wanted to encourage, hopefully this encourages you this morning, I hope so, that it doesn't matter what your social status is, it doesn't matter how popular you are or aren't, it doesn't matter where you work, God has these gifts to give us. And if we want to be rich towards him, all we have to do is receive it. Receive the beauty of the world he's created, receive the beauty of his acts of deliverance in our lives, think about his righteousness, to think about the sufferings of Christ. This is what makes us truly rich. Let's pray. Uh, Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather here this morning and to praise and worship you. We pray that you would have mercy on us, Lord, and deliver us from our grumbling and our complaining. And I just thank you for the life of everyone here in this room. I, I hope that everyone leaves here this morning knowing how precious they are to you. And I hope that we leave here this morning just rejoicing in your faithfulness to us. That we'll remember you throughout the rest of this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, just a couple of reminders. Remember the.